Well, let's get started. Uh, I should have uh, message notes up there. Um, if you want that, you can throw, go ahead and throw that up there. Who is there tonight? Awesome. Perfect. You can scan that there um, if you want those. Um, yeah, somebody was excited about that. Great. Um, I'm a bit of a scatterbrain, and these kind of are always based off of my sermon notes. And so if sometimes they feel a little bit scattered. Um, just blame me because this is, this is how my head works. So these notes are kind of based off how my brain would work. And so don't, don't judge me too hard. Um, I, I want to wrap up talking um, tonight uh, about this idea of being kings and priests. Um, my hope, uh, my great, great, great hope is to not be here next Sunday because my son will be here. But until, until then, yeah, until then, I am still childless. And so, and my wife looks like the planet Jupiter right now. So we are... Just in the process, you know, I got to get her shoes on, roll her out of bed and all the stuff. And so 41 weeks pregnant is, uh, is, is a lot, especially for chant babies. We just make big people. And so I feel bad for her little self. So pray for her. She's at home today. Um, but I, I, I want to wrap this up tonight. Um, and we oftentimes, I feel like we've talked a lot about in, in the role of being king priest, really if you could define the DNA of kind of my teaching, it really is found in this idea of, of, of kingdom theology, kingdom living, this idea of, of being called into bringing the kingdom here, living out of that, and, and living in dominion and bringing the cosmos into order through how we live. So um, I didn't really feel a need to, to dive too deep into the individual role as kings or, or queens if you like that term. Um, but I, I did feel the, the real desire to move into understanding our individual role as priests, right? Or what we would describe as our priestly vocation. And at the end of the day, we've talked about that these are our, our dual role, that we become king-priest. We live in, in two worlds. Um, last week, we talked out of Hebrews and how basically the writer of Hebrews kind of went through all these examples of understanding who we are, which is found in Jesus, who Jesus is. He has become the magnificent and royal king priest in, in the lineage and order of King Melchizedek. Why is that important? Because King Melchizedek actually was a priest of God before the Levitical order or the Levitical priesthood. So what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to you is that the Levites who were priests are in submission to the law of Moses. But Jesus, as our magnificent king priest, is actually precedes the law of Moses. We've talked a lot about this. As predominantly all Gentiles, and if there is someone Jewish in here, you now, but for all of us, especially Gentiles, our covenant is not with Moses. Our covenant is with Abraham, right? We never really played a role in the Mosaic world or the Mosaic law. Our covenant is with Abraham. And Jesus, and, and Paul talks a lot about this in Romans, that we are attached to the covenant of Abraham because just as Abraham had to believe God through faith, so we must do the same thing. Where Moses and them didn't have to do it through faith, they were allowed to do it through the law. Okay? That was a, a small synopsis, hopefully, of last week. And if you have a couple hours, you could go listen to last week. Um, but um, the reality is this is the idea of us as this dual vocation of kings and priests. 
that we somehow live in. We, we use the term uh, dominion and presence. Our role as kings is dominion. Our role as priests um, is, is presence. And so I want us to kind of begin to zoom in and understand our role individually as priests. Oftentimes, I think we can see this role and kind of, kind of push it off as this idea of simply just, I love God. My priestly role is just that I, I just, I love the Lord. But there's actually a lot more to it. There's a lot more to understanding this idea. I want us to first look at what, if we could examine what priests did, especially priests um, in the Old Testament, what was their job, right? So if you would um, go to Deuteronomy 10, we're going to look at verse 8. And this is in the English Standard Version of the Bible. So um, Brian Simmons is... Not right and fast enough. Um, it says, um, at the time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and bless in his name to this day. So we, we understand this. The role of the Levitical priesthood, the tribe of Levi, who was set apart as priest for the nation of Israel, their role, their job was to minister to the Lord in front of the presence of the Lord. The only true nature of understanding the presence of God before the New Testament understanding of the Holy Spirit is there is the Spirit of God. We, we'll talk about that later. But the reality is the most manifest understood amount of presence was found in the Ark of the Covenant. And so Israel would often, the, especially the, well, mainly just the priesthood, they would minister in front of the presence of God. They would surround themselves in presence, and their only focus was to minister to the heart of the Lord. Now, this term can oftentimes um, be mysterious. What does, it, what does it mean to minister to the heart of the Lord? Because we see it in different places, right? In the Old Testament, um, this is 1 Samuel 2.11 it says, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the priest. This is Samuel. If you want to talk about dedication to the Lord, Samuel's mom said, if you'll make me pregnant, I'll dedicate my son to you. And then when Samuel turned 12, she dropped him off at the temple and was like, love you. Bye. Enjoy your life. Right? And so Samuel spent all his days ministering to the heart of the Lord or ministering before the Lord. This is a very Old Testament term. This, this meant predominantly worship, prayer, thanksgiving, the um, use of incense, the, the use of, unfortunately, um, animal blood and animal sacrifice. A lot of dead doves, a lot of dead lambs, a lot of dead cows, a lot of dead everything. Right, All this was acts unto ministering to God himself. And at the end of the day, the first place their mind went was never to be ministered to. The priesthood never walked into the Holy of Holies, into the first temple, into the second temple, into the tabernacle, anywhere with the mindset of being in the room I will be ministered to. 
It, it predominantly happens, but that was never their mindset. And it really predominantly wouldn't have even been much of a concept to them. Rather, the idea was to minister to the Lord. If we look at ourselves now, predominantly in the church, we live in a world where this gathering, these gatherings, Sunday mornings, whatever you want to call them, are about being ministered to. But the priesthood would have only saw their vocation as ministering to the Lord, right? We see a similar thing if we were to look at uh, what does it mean to minister to the Lord in Acts 13, 2, if we want to look at a, a New Testament context, um, this is also the English Standard Version. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. This would have been right after uh, Jesus ascends. And it says that the apostles after Jesus ascends find their way into the upper room and they begin worshiping the Lord and fasting. If you were to take that word worshiping, which is a Greek word, and you were to relate that Greek word, bring it back and dissect it into Hebrew, it would be the word ministering. So for the early church in the upper room, you could say that they were fasting and ministering to the Lord. The concept, the mindset behind it had nothing to do with being ministered to. Right? Which is our entire lives now. Worship for us is about being ministered to. Worship time is about being ministered to. Prophetic time is about being ministered. Everything is about being ministered to. Right? And the concept of the church was we actually, when we gather, we minister to him. It's a, it's a very kind of different, it sounds similar, but it's vastly different than predominantly how we have viewed or understood our gatherings. Okay, so um, I love having clear language for everything in our house. And so uh, save this in your notes, put it wherever you want to. What is ministering to the Lord? This is what I wrote. Ministering to the Lord is when all parts of myself, spirit, mind, body, and soul are single focused in worship and thanksgiving towards him. Okay, this is our definition of understanding. From, from this day forward, if we come up here and we say that we are ministering to the heart of the Lord, this needs to be the definition that runs across your brain. Okay, ministering to the Lord is when all parts of myself, spirit, mind, body, and soul are single focused in worship and thanksgiving towards him. This is our holy vocation when it comes to the idea of being kings and priests. The holy piece of this, the presence piece of dominion and presence is about ministering to him. That includes my spirit or my mind. That includes my body. That includes my soul. That includes every part of what makes me a being. Being unto worship and unto him in thanksgiving with a single focus on him. Abby said a beautiful statement tonight. She said, I, I'm seeing different colors in your eyes, right? Nora, come here. Come up here. Come on. I promise. You don't have to listen to them. You listen to me. I'm kind of in charge of your dad, so you come over here. You stand right here up on this chair. Ready? I got you. Okay, now you look at me. Can, can you see yourself in my eyes? Yeah, and I can see you, right? Now, if I'm back here, I'll still hold you. Can you see me? 
barely, right? But if I go further back, you can't see me anymore, can you? Right, why? Because the only way we can see each other is to be this close to each other, hey? Hmm. Right? And so when Abby begins, you're free to go back, thank you. When Abby begins the statement of understanding that I'm seeing different color in your eyes, it's because Abby in the moment is realizing she's been granted a place of proximity that requires almost nose-to-nose interaction. And the idea behind that is not that that is for her, but that is actually for him. And that feels like a perverted concept to us because predominantly we have a belief that we are trying to earn the ability to be affectionate with him when he actually wants to be affectionate with you before you want to be affectionate with him. Scripture would say it like this, that you love him because he first loved you. Your empowerment to be even able to be close to him comes out of his desire to be close to you. His proximity that he desires with you is greater than the desire you have for proximity with him. It is a totally different mindset than what we're used to. And so I want to break down this idea of ministering to the heart of the Lord out of our priesthood in two areas. Because predominantly, and predominantly not everything is an absolute. There's there's oftentimes when things intercross and, and move together and flow together. If something's an absolute, I'll say it. So don't, these are not concrete, but these are the predominant realities. Is we minister to the Lord in two places in our life. We have personal ministry and we have family ministry. We use the term, you use the term ministry because our ministry as believers is ministering to him. That's why we call it, I think ministry now has a vo, is a vocation of you work at a church. But your holy ministry is actually ministering to him. That is your place as a believer. You want your call in your life? You want to know what you're called to? It's called to minister to him. There, say la. Merry Christmas. So there are two different types of, of understanding this. First, there's personal ministry, and that's to the Father, and this is in the secret place. Our personal ministry looks like our time often in the secret place. For some of us, you know, I'm a get up really early in the morning. I'm normally up around 6 a.m., make coffee, and, you know, I'm normally, you know, in a chair, quiet, alone for a couple of hours, just, just doing my thing. I try to end my night thinking about him. I, break my day up in different ways thinking about him. All these different things are my personal time. You know, Jesus, it would be described for Jesus as being in the wilderness, right? Then there's this idea of family ministry to the Father. This is where as a kingdom family, we gather and our hearts are set together on ministering to him, okay? Why are these broken down like this? Because, and this is something I really want us to understand. There are two different types of how Yahweh has given us his presence according to scripture. And this idea of personal ministry and family ministry are both locked up in these two different concepts of understanding the presence of God, okay? We've often heard statements that that kind of, in a way, block off one or the other. We'll hear things like, you know, like when I was young, it was, we had this whole thing of like, you don't welcome the presence of God in, man, because the presence of God's already there, right? That's what we always said. You don't, don't welcome him in, man. You're changing. It's a bad mindset, right? You, you don't welcome him in because he's already there. This is often what's understood as omnipresence. 
This is the omnipresence of God. But there is another kind of presence that God gives us or, or reveals to us, which is actually manifest presence. God's presence does not come in often one way, but two ways. We have his omnipresence, his ability to be everywhere, always, all the time. That's what omnipresence is. God is everywhere, all the time, in everyone. With, and his mind is so vast and omni that he's actually able to have individual thoughts about everyone at the same time. Incredible. Right? Uh, uh, I think a great point to make too is, and to understand is that when we think about the enemy or more predominantly the devil, he is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere all the time. He is not making plans all the time. He does not care about your raise at work. He's really off doing something else. Does that not mean there's not principalities and forces of darkness working against us region by region, city by city? No, I'm not saying that. Those are real. But if we're going to look at an individual being, the only being everywhere always is God. It is the omnipresence all existing everywhere all the time. This omnipresence is the thing that actually lives inside of us. We talk about the idea that the spirit of God, when you get saved, comes inside of you. This is his omnipresence. When Adam is born, it says that God breathed the breath of life and his spirit into him. This is the peace of God that is everywhere. This is oftentimes that, that thing in us that when we are alone in our alone time, we begin to encounter. But there's another kind of, of way in which God reveals himself, and this is manifest presence. Manifest presence is the reality of the Holy Spirit choosing to reveal himself to you in an intangible presence and power. Omnipresence is often something you will never feel, never see, or never understand. It is just with you, right? Hopefully you begin to hear it. You begin to hear God's voice, prophetic, those type of things. That is omnipresence. But manifest presence is a revealing that is oftentimes more tangible in sight, in taste, in smell, whatever it is, a more tangible revealing of the reality of who God is in front of you. I think all of us, predominantly, if we were to think back about a, a moment where we've encountered God in a greater way, we'd all have one. A moment where the, the normal amount of presence that we feel was somehow exploded. It's like he was standing, you hear people say, it's like he was standing next to me. It's like I could hear his audible voice. It's like I could see him in the room. People have said that. I, I saw his face. You ever hear Chris Dupre talk about seeing Jesus? It's incredible. That's not omnipresence. That is the manifest presence of God. It's vastly different, okay? And when we, unfortunately, if we always combine them, we'll never have a great understanding of how to flow in either of them. I love this statement by A.W. Tozer. In his book, um, The Pursuit of God, he writes, the presence and the manifestation of his presence are not the same. There can be one without the other. God is here when we are wholly unaware of it. He is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. Okay? Make sense? We, in, 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 the, in the church culture, we would actually use a different term for understanding omnipresence and manifest presence. And we would say there's a difference between the Holy Spirit in us 
and the Holy Spirit on us. Right? This is a great way to understand the idea of omnipresence versus manifest presence. Is that the Holy Spirit, we use, I've used a statement before, the Holy Spirit is in you for you and he's on you for others. Right? Let's, let's just look at some examples. Jesus is God because even though he's man, when he's born, he's born with the Holy Spirit inside of him, right? That's, what, that's the piece of divinity left as he's pulled off divinity, is that the Holy Spirit is born inside of him. And in Luke, when Jesus is baptized, it says that the Holy Spirit ascended on Jesus like a dove and remained. Okay, if we look at the Old Testament, the most interesting thing, and sometimes your Bible translations will get it wrong, that's okay, it happens. Um, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is never in someone. He's always on someone, right? Uh, a big lion comes up to Samson, and Scripture says that the Holy Spirit rushed upon Samson, and Samson ripped that lion apart, right? Same thing with Gideon. The Bible says that the Holy, that the Spirit of God clothed Gideon. Right? This is always on. Saul, when he's getting ready to go out to his first battle, it says the Holy the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Notice though, if, if in, in, in correct language, the Holy Spirit is never inside of someone. Why? Because you are not without Christ worthy to carry the Holy Spirit or the presence of God in you. In comes Jesus. In comes your imputed righteousness and your imputed holiness. In comes you now being the holy of holies and God's inner court. Now the presence is allowed to live inside of you. Omnipresence versus manifest presence. Right? Jesus spends his, it's interesting, and, and this is a great way to look at it. Jesus chooses to do everything as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that only starts when the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. For 30 years, there's no recorded miracles of Jesus. Not because he couldn't, but because he chose to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that way, there's an invitation for us to do the same thing. Right? Bill Johnson would say it like this. If Jesus does everything as God, that's incredible, but there's no invitation for me. But if Jesus does everything as a man, empowered by the Holy Spirit, I'm now invited in to do the same thing. Right? And so this reality is, and you'll see, it's, it's very fast. Jesus gets the Holy Spirit upon him, and it remains. He goes into the wilderness, comes out, and boom, water turns into wine. It's that fast. Blink of an eye. Right? I, I love this. Paul would teach about omnipresence in Romans. This is our scripture that, that Brian so beautifully and poetically read. This is Romans 8, 11 through 14. Yes, God raised Jesus to life. And since God's spirit of resurrection lives in you, omni, he will also raise your dying body to life by the same spirit that breathes life into you, omni again. So then, beloved ones, the flesh has no claims on us at all, and we have no further obligation to live in obedience to it. For when you live controlled by the flesh, you are about to die. But if the life of the Spirit puts to death the corrupt ways of the flesh, we then taste abundant life. The mature children of God, ready? The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. This is our, our understanding of how omnipresence works. Omnipresence is this ability internally to surrender myself to his presence, to begin to feel 
the impulses of how he works. Some stuff we do just by impulse. Have you ever, maybe, maybe this is a, for a younger age bracket, but have you ever decided to go through like a social media fast and just subconsciously you're bored so you just pick up your phone and you're like, what in the, somehow you've, you've, you've ended up on Instagram, you don't even know how it happened. Or you're like, you know what? I'm gonna put my phone down and work for two hours. You're 20 minutes in and without, I mean, no malice, you just picked up your phone. It's an impulse, right? This is how Paul describes the proximity we, he desires for us to carry with him. That as Jesus would just by impulse act like God, you are called to impulsively act like God. This is an encounter with the omnipresence of Jesus. So let's look at it. What does the personal ministry of a priest look like now? Jesus would say things like this. This is Matthew 6, 6. But, eat, but um, whenever you pray, go into your innermost chamber and be alone with Father God praying to him in secret, and your father who sees all you do will reward you openly. He also says this in Luke 5, 16. But Jesus often slipped away from them and went into the wilderness to pray. So when we think about omnipresence and we think about personal ministry as a priest, we have to think about this as our secret place, like we've said. Your first, if your priestly role is broken down in two ways as far as personal ministry and family ministry, your personal ministry is your ability to enter in and remain in the secret place. Earlier last year, we did a whole, I think it was like eight weeks on spiritual disciplines. Half of these disciplines are around the idea of you encountering the omnipresence of God alone in your room, in your house, in the wilderness, in your woods, wherever you go. I ran into someone today who laughed, uh, someone who lives in our subdivision, and they said, I know people around our subdivision think you're crazy because I just walk around our subdivision praying, but I have a hard time praying without moving my mouth. So I just look like I'm walking around our subdivision all day talking to myself like a psychopath. And then I realized I went on a prayer walk today. It didn't change out of my pajamas, so I had Christmas pajama pants on, and I was just walking around our neighborhood talking to myself. And so um, I, I look a bit insane, but for me, I have a little bit of ADHD, if you can't tell. And walking sometimes allows my brain to center in. But I understand this as my personal time. The, the hardest thing for us often is that when I go into that time, it's actually not about ministering to myself, it's about ministering to him. The encounters you're waiting to have in your personal time with him are not behind the door of doing more. They're behind the door of the heart posture of this is about him, not about me. I did write this. The beauty of ministering to the Lord is love's true nature is to give. So there will never be a time you give to minister to the Lord that he doesn't minister to you in your heart. The, the natural inclination of love is to give. God created out of his love to share his authority, his, his purpose, his meaning, everything about him he desires to share. That is because his genetic DNA is love. So when we're in our alone time, we often are ministered to. The perversion of our brain is predominantly that we go in simply with the desire to be ministered to, not to minister. This is not our, our place. Our place is to bring something to him, to offer our hearts to him, to bring an offering to him. 
in the Old Testament, nobody went up before the Lord without something in their hands. The beautiful thing about Jesus is now that thing in your hands is supposed to be you. Why does this, why does ministering to him matter? Because it pleases him. This is Genesis 8, 20 through 21. It says, Noah erected an altar dedicated to Yahweh. Then he selected ritually clean animals and birds of every species and offered them as burnt sacrifices on the altar. Here it is. And when Yahweh smelled the sweet fragrance of Noah's offering, his heart was stirred. And he said, never again will I curse the earth because of people, even though the imagination of their hearts are evil from their childhood, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. I promise this. The promise of God not flooding the earth didn't come out of Noah's obedience to build an ark. It actually came out of Noah willing to produce an offering before the Lord that was a sweet fragrance that pleased him. Now, we understand for ourselves that there is no more animal sacrifice. There is just a sacrifice of us. We become the sacrifice if we will allow ourselves. We are the sweet fragrance when we, as we talked about, minister to him, which is my, my mind, my spirit, my body, and my soul, fully focused on him in worship and in thanksgiving, right? And for some of us, that, that, that's easy, right? Like, like to me, getting up and doing that after all these years is, you know what I mean? It's, 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 common, it's, just common, it's just a common thing. And it's something I've seen my whole life. We could be in, at Panama Beach, Florida for a week. If my parents were there, I could wake up at 5 o'clock and see my dad with a one-year Bible and a house coat and a cup of coffee, reading through and doing his thing. I've seen it my whole life. I, I've kind of followed the same pattern my whole life. It, it can be easy. What often, unfortunately, happens is we move away from ministering to his heart when we oftentimes just surrender what we do to him alone as routine. Right? This is what I wrote. But do we view, uh, is what I wrote, for some, this is, easy, this is an easier piece of the puzzle. Get up, get coffee, get a chair, and get to it. But do we view this as, an, as a ministering moment, or do we view this simply as routine? Because routine is not an offering to God, you are. Routine not based in intimacy is simply another form of legality. And if we don't watch ourselves, oftentimes our personal routines with God actually become about legalism, not about intimacy. Because I do them and I go, done, start my day, woo. You know what I mean? That's the best part about the YouVersion Bible app. When you finish your, your reading thing, it goes, great job today. You hit your reading goal. And you just feel good, don't you? I did it. I'm like, God. And oftentimes we get, end up stuck in this routine. And what ends up happening is we end up somehow bitter, jaded, angry, frustrated, broken marriage, addiction, and we have this beautiful routine in place, but the reality is it's left being an offering and simply just become a routine because I've entered always wanting. But ministering is actually about giving. I wrote, Jesus is calling us into the secret place to awaken your senses that he is always with you and working through you. He has designated you as the new temple, as the new place in which his presence will dwell, not the tabernacle. He is asking you to bring yourself to him and watch what happens. 
This is our place of personal intimacy with him. This is our personal role as priest within the idea of being kings and priests. It's not that I come to him, which is beautiful. It's that I come to him understanding that the goal is to come to him for him. Which is something oftentimes we just don't do. I come to him for me. Or, or even worse, I come to him to show him that I will come to him. That's also not ministering to him. That's also about me. Because that's me wanting to feel good about myself. But our personal ministry as priests is the understanding that we have been called into a place of personal intimacy where we are now the holy of holies, where we encounter God and we offer ourselves as the sacrificial offering which becomes a pleasing aroma to him. This is personal ministry. This is what your alone time is designed to be. This is the whole thing. So, this leads us into the understanding if this is personal ministry, what does family ministry look like? Or another way of saying it is, what does the corporate act of ministering to the heart of the Lord look like? This is where it gets a little dicier. So buckle up. I wrote this. As a family, our gatherings are simply built for one purpose and one goal and one hope. Right? Be loves. That is to minister to the heart of Jesus. This is why for us we ex- we examined uh, this is this is why for us we examine our worship and we understand that before teaching before equipping the saints before anything that we do our central purpose is to minister to the heart of the Lord. If every time we came in here we simply allowed ourselves just to be in worship and that was enough I would leave. If every week he said, hey, you've done it, great, let's go, right? A lot of us would hate that because for, for a lot of us, worship is just unto something else, right? We're in, we're, we're in the, the season of, of the, the era of knowledge. So most of us actually aren't here to minister to the Lord. We're actually just revelation junkies, right? We're just constantly looking for our, our next hit of, of what's the next great thing we're going to un- uncover in Scripture, that's why the end times movement is so big. Because simplicity with Christ is not exciting enough anymore. Ministering to his heart is not enough. <clears throat> if ministering to the heart of the Lord is all parts of myself singly focused in worship, the, the question that we need to ask and we need to get a better definition of is what is worship? What actually is worship? Worship, and this is in your notes, is me fully engaging in agreement with who God is. That's what worship is. Worship is me fully engaging in agreement with who God is. It's when I enter the room and my offering to him is everything they're saying about you is true. Everything you've said you will be for me is true. Everything you've said you will be for my family is true. Everything that you have been throughout the the decades and the millennia and eternity that has been spoken and written about you is true. This is worship. Who understands worship better than anyone in the world? David, a man after God's own heart. David wrote things like this in Psalms 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is beauty. This is personal ministry. This is personal worship. This is my intimacy alone going, I'm partnering with who you say you are. How does David bring this into family ministry or the corporate act of worshiping God? David had a this is what I wrote. David had a radical first love. David had a radical love first for God, which the natural outcome of that became a great desire for proximity. But not just personally, David had a radical awareness. Ready, of that in order for those around him to remain in union with God, it required a nation of worship. The most common problem with the kingdom family not experiencing the manifest presence of Jesus in community comes out of a lack of being a house of worshipers. If you want to know why you are not seeing the manifest presence of God predominantly when you are gathered with your family, it is because you have an incorrect understanding of what worship is. David gives us a prophetic insight into what worship is, was supposed to be, and now always will be. How many of you have ever heard about the tabernacle of David? Some of you, okay, that's good. Many of us are familiar with the tabernacle of Moses. We're familiar with the first temple, the second temple. Then we're familiar with now us as the temple. But many people don't actually know about the tabernacle of David. Here's what happens in David's time. Tell me if this sounds familiar. David becomes king, and the tabernacle of Moses is set up. It's way over here on top of a mountain. And all day, the sacrifices are being made, the animals are being presented, the incense is being done, all the beautiful things are being done. But guess what? The Ark of the Covenant's not in there. So all the aspects of what worship is supposed to be are happening, but the presence of God is not actually there. Sound familiar? Walk around, go to different places. Sound familiar? All the same acts. We lift our hands. We sing three songs. We close it up. Well, it's what? I mean, it's all, the, all the priests and the Levites thought, well, this is what we're supposed to do. We offer the sacrifices. Here's the, here's the tabernacle of Moses. This is how we do it. No one's going, yeah, but God's not here. No one cares, right? Because there's law. There's a way of doing things. We don't need that. We already have the structure in place. What does David do? This is 2 Samuel. 6, 16 through 22. It says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and hosts 
See, he blessed, the, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Basically, McCall's saying, why in the world would you celebrate like that? And David says, because the reason I celebrate like this is because God put me in charge over your dad and your brother. And it's because I do this is why. Burn. See you later. He goes, and if you think this is bad, it's only going to get worse. If you begin to look at the historian Josephus, he talks about the interesting thing about David's tabernacle is after it's erected and the offerings are given, there ends up being no blood offerings given at the tabernacle of David, just at the tabernacle of Moses. Huh. Come on. Makes me want to get old Pentecostal. Right? But, but what there was, if you look, is Moses, or uh, David, began to send a whole section of the Levitical priesthood in to simply worship and give thanksgiving around the ark all day long. It says David employed over 8,000 full-time singers, musicians, and gatekeepers, and the temple of David would remain for 33 years before the next war. <laughs> so up on one mountain, we have the law. No presence, ritual, same things over and over and over again. Kill this, kill that, kill that. David prophetically sets up something where the only thing that's happening is there's singing, there's rejoicing, there's praise, and there's worship. And it's simply around the presence of God, surrounding it, circling it. David doesn't follow protocol. He follows his joy. He follows his understanding of what it means to be in the presence. David says one time in Psalms, you do not require animal sacrifice, but you require a heart that is broken, contrite, broken before you. This is the idea of what manifest presence is. The apostles experienced the same thing in Acts 1, 12 through 14. It says the disciples left the Mount of Olives and returned to Jerusalem which was less than a mile away. Arriving there, they went into a large second-floor room to pray. Those present were all the disciples. And then a number of women, including Mary, Jesus' mother. His brothers were all there as well. All of them were united in prayer, gripped with one passion, interceding day and night. Interceding day and night. Ministering before the heart of the Lord. This is what worship is. What oftentimes becomes our problem in understanding worship nowadays is because of the current state of how the church is set up, predominantly the Western church has invited your preferences into worship. Right? I've heard it, I've heard it my whole life. It's too long. Not enough fast songs, not enough slow songs. I can't do this for an hour. I gotta sit down. 
I don't like when they don't sing the normal songs. They just sing what's on their heart. I hate it. <laughs> Can we do the song I used to like? And what oftentimes we always do is we are trying to invite our preferences to the table of ministering to the heart of the Lord. And the reality is this. This is the, the, the most tender way I can say this. Jesus doesn't care about your preferences when it comes to ministering to him. He just doesn't. I hate it for you. But the reality is he doesn't care about your preferences. I have preferences too, but guess what? You can ask Braden, you can ask Abby. I, I really give no authority or, or um, rules to what worship is. Whether we do two songs, one songs, four songs, whether it's 10 minutes, two hours, four hours, I don't care. And I tell them, you don't care. Your goal is to encounter the presence and say, what do you want us to do? And that's what we will do. And you know what I do when I walk into those doors? I check my preferences at the door and I move into ministering to his heart. That's the reality. That's what worship is. It's amazing to me when people can say that I can't worship God for an hour. I, this isn't shame. This is just the reality. Jesus hung on a cross for six. Six. Think about that. Six. I wrote this. For you to be in worship and not engage is proof you choose your preferences over Christ. For us to come into this room and choose to do something other than worship is to choose that I prefer how I am comfortable over how Christ wants to be worshipped. And if you want to worship a different way, then find different leadership because we are going to lean into what, how the Lord wants us to worship him. That's our goal. That's why we pray. That's why we gather. We pray about what songs to sing. We pray about what moments to do. We pray into spontaneity. We open up our service to ministry or to mystery, I mean. That is because we are trying to shed ourselves of our preferences. Right? And we also begin to believe this lie. Okay, that's great. But also, like, that's just not my personality. Like, worshiping is just not, like, it's not my personality to, like, really engage in worship. Guess what? Breaking news. God doesn't care about that either. You, you couldn't be chosen to be a Levite as long as you weren't an Enneagram 1 or an Enneagram 9. I don't know what they are. Whichever one is like Brian. Whatever Enneagram that is. It's one of the most amazing things about Brian. If you, if you hang out with Brian, the reality is this. Brian is not the most wildly loud oh, person in the world, right? But when he walks into this room, he checks his, his Myers-Briggs or his Enneagram number at the door and he chooses to encounter presence. That doesn't mean you've got to run around the room. Can I tell you something beautiful? A couple weeks ago, I was in here worshiping and oftentimes... You can look at people, when they sit down, you're wondering if they're engaging in worship. So I turn around and I look, and she's not here tonight, but Barbara Double Air was sitting right over there. And she'd probably been standing for 45 minutes. Barbara Double Air only has one lung. And so it's okay if she sits down after a while. So she sits down and I look back at her, right? 
And, I, and you're thinking, okay, she sat down, she must be done. And she's sitting there with her face to the sky and she's sobbing. Right? And I, you realize in this moment that worship has little to do about how much I raise my hands, how much I dance around. All that stuff's great. That's a great thing. But the reality is, is in worship, are, is your heart engaged to ministering to him? Because if you're standing like a dead body, the reality is you're choosing yourself over Christ. You don't get to bring your preferences to the table of ministering to God. God is very specific. This is Revelations 4, 2 through 11. This is talking about the throne room. It says, instantly I was taken into the spirit realm, and behold, I saw a heavenly throne being set up in place, and someone seated upon it. His appearance was sparkling like crystal, glowing like a um, sparkling gemstone. Surrounding the throne was a circle of green light, like an emerald rainbow. Encircling the great throne were 24 thrones with elders in glistening white garments, seated upon them, each wearing a golden crown of victory. Impulsing from throne were blazing flashes of lightning, crashes of thunder, and voices. And burning before the throne were seven blazing torches, which represented the seven spirits of God. And in front of all the throne were there was pavement like crystal sea of glass. Around the throne and on each side stood four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature resembled a lion, the second an ox, the third a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of the four living creatures had six wings full of eyes all around and under their wings. They worshipped without ceasing day and night, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, the was and is and is coming. And everywhere the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to the one who is enthroned and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fell face down before one seated on the throne. And they worshiped the one who lives forever and ever. And they surrendered their crowns before the throne singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things and for your pleasure all things exist. When you read that, let me ask you this. Does it sound like God is not very specific about how he should be worshipped? This is more specification than I could ever imagine. Specific numbers, specific creatures, specific eyes, specific moments, specific words. And we have this perverted mindset that when I walk into the room, I get to worship when I want. I get to not worship when I want. I get to just be. I get to just sit. It doesn't matter. Worship is different for every person. Guess what? That's not biblical. There are, are very biblical ideas and standards and concepts to what worship is supposed to be. And if yours don't align with it, it's not that Scripture's wrong. It's that you're wrong. The problem predominantly we are currently facing in worship is that worship is not a is not a part of our required theology. Right? Well, I don't really have to engage in worship because like, you know, faith in Jesus is enough to get me where I want to go. And I'm just really here to receive deeper revelation anyway, so I'll just kind of wait that out. Everything has become into this perverted idea of required theology. Well, what's required? What's actually required of me? And yet you'll hear someone in that same vein go, I just can't wait for revival, man. Can't wait. 
I just want to see Jesus come. Really? Because when he's here in the room, you don't worship him. So if he comes cracking through the clouds, are you going to be worshiping him or are you going to sit down like this? It's just the harsh reality of it. Our inability to engage in worship has nothing to do with our preferences or our personality. It actually has everything to do with our ability to focus on ourselves over Christ. It's the nature of how worship is designed. I leave my preferences at the door. There are a lot of things. I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and the Pentecostal church is weird. Because if, if, a, if an adult runs around the room with a flag, it's perfectly okay. But if I, as a kid, drew on a tithe envelope, I got spanked. Like there was only certain moments of chaos that were okay and others that weren't. If I cried, I got slapped in the mouth. If an adult started speaking in tongues in the middle of the preaching, everyone was like, shh, shh, shh. There's all these controlled moments of what chaos is, right? And I, and I get that. I, I have preferences. Sometimes kids do things that aren't my favorite. Sometimes adults do things in worship that aren't my favorite. I've been to more supernatural communities than us, and you'll see adults dressed in leotards dancing around, and I'm like, ooh, this isn't for me. <laughs> this doesn't feel like my thing. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, if you were a guy dressed in a leotard, it wasn't a good day for you. It wasn't a good day. That's why I never became a ballerina. And the reality is the hardest thing to do often is to check my preferences of what worship has to look like at the door. And whatever room I enter into, surrender my authority to the people leading worship and going, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you take worship, I'll go and worship. Preferences, it's hard to get past, right? Abby gets up here tonight and she's singing. She's not singing any songs we know. She's just basically talking with somewhat of a singing voice, right, for 15 minutes. And you, you, you're wanting to engage, and, you're, and you go, wait, well, this is the one I'm comfortable with. So oftentimes it's amazing. When, when, when prophetic worship goes too long, you'll see people like, just kind of wait till the next song starts. Because they know if they wait it out, eventually Braden will get into another tune. What happens is we're, we're, we're fighting this moment, this thing in, internally in us, this reality of man. I often like to choose my preferences over the presence. And I'm, un and I'm okay, I'm comfortable with doing it the way maybe I've grown up doing it, but if it's not like that, it's too much mystery for me. But your, your, your heavenly vocation as king priest is as much about dominion as it is presence. And in your alone time, your call is to minister to the heart of the Lord. And when you come into this room, with this family, during this family's worship time, your responsibility is to minister to him. I just don't care about anything else than that. Now, if we move out of that, that's why leadership is there, to correct it. Sometimes that does happen. Hey, we're moving too much into mystery or unpreparedness, and this isn't even worship anymore. We just like being weird. And some people get there, Right? We can get there where it's like, you know what? This ended up just kind of being weird. It wasn't even actually really holy. But hopefully, with healthy leadership, the idea and the reality of family ministry or corporate worship is about the reality of relinquishing myself in worship and agreeing with God on who God is. 
And if an hour of that, if 45 minutes of that, if 30 minutes of that bothers you, then what are you, like, like what are we doing? What's the, what's the point? If we're not going to look like Jesus, let's all just watch a church online, sit at home. But if the reality is, is that we believe in this concept that we are beloved, if we believe in this idea that we have become as righteous as God, as holy as the Son, if we have become as loved as much as Jesus is loved, if that does not open up our hearts into the expression of intimacy, there's something calloused on my side. I wrote that, imagine a reality where you say you love someone, but an hour of heart-to-heart intimacy is too costly. Imagine you love your wife and you say, look, we can go to dinner, but I'm taking you to McDonald's because if I spend an hour with you, I'm going to blow my brains out. (laughs) If I talk to you for an hour, I'm literally going to end my own life. Right? How many of us do, do what we can? I have to make sure Bailey, my sweet Bailey, She's a, a, what we call a, a verbal processor. I am a nonverbal processor. Everything lives in here and it never leaves. Before Bailey's head can hit a pillow, everything has to come out of her. Whatever her word count is left for the day, she's gonna get all them in. Every last word. And if I'm half asleep, she don't care. She don't care about nothing. And early on, you start to go like, hey, like, you know, like that, the thing you, the story you told me over 10 sentences, you could have like really wrapped them into two real fast. I didn't have to know about what you were wearing while you were there or what so-and-so was feeling or how so-and-so was looking at you while you were there. And what I've learned is that intimacy means I leave my preferences of how I enjoy to communicate and I lean into how she wants to communicate. I sit and I listen. Not only, yeah. And I don't listen like I don't enjoy it either. I'm like, oh, wow, what? She said that? My God, I'll never talk to her again. Right? You go, I can't believe that. Now I'm getting really good because I'll, I'll, I'll remember stuff and I'll go, so did so-and-so end up apologizing to you about that? Later on, it's like, oh, now she knows I'm all in. I've remembered names and faces and moments now. All this has come out of my agenda to show Bailey that her heart matters more than mine. Her heart matters more to mine, more than mine. This is the idea of what worship is. You guys can go ahead and stand. This is the idea of what the intimacy of worship is, is that I leave my preferences behind. I scale myself back and I go, what are you wanting out of me? That's not saying You have to lift your hands for an hour. That's not saying you've got to sing. Some of you have heard you sing, don't sing. That's none of that. What I am asking you though is for this house and for this family, our goal of gathering is to minister to the heart of the Lord. And is your heart doing that? Is your heart engaged in that? Because we we romanticize biblical narratives with a reality that we could probably never live in the narrative that we romanticize. I would have loved to have been in the upper room. Really? Three days praying and fasting nonstop? That's what you would love to do? Okay, sure. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm in the reality of being, being like, you want to come up? He's like, I'll be up in a day or two. I'll pop in in a, in a day or two. I'm going to go eat dinner, and then maybe I'll show up. Y'all just get starting. Y'all get praying. Y'all get the flutes going. I'll be there in a couple hours. That's my reality, you know. I would have loved to have lived in the Acts church. Really? All your money go into a pile? Everyone eat dinner together every night? Everyone go to church together every day? That's some of your guys' dream life? I was reading through some of the patristic fathers this past week in a book called The Apostolic Fathers by Matthew Reese. And he was talking about in the early church, what they would do is when they would find Christians who wouldn't renounce their faith, they would cover them. They would put them in a, in a big, huge coliseum. And they would cover them in animal skin. And then they would release wild dogs to eat them alive. Now, let's, let's, wow, just one note, huh? That was beautiful. Just kind of just, I thought it was gorgeous, just one note. Now, let's think about this. This is what I often try to sometimes even do in my own head. An hour in worship or being eaten alive by dogs. Where's your heart? Sometimes I am, I am the most probably grace guy in the room. I am the least shame guy in the room. I am the most, you have the finished work inside of you already guy in the room. You are as loved as Jesus in the room. I, I am that guy probably more than anyone in the room. I'm also in the understanding that attached to my unbelief is the ignorance that I don't have unbelief. And some of you are in a lot of ways unconvinced of the finished work of Christ and it shows not by how we live but by how we choose to worship. That has nothing to do with your, your hands being raised or if you want to come over here and grab some flags. That has everything to do with how your heart is postured towards the Father because ministering to Him, once again, has nothing to do with you. I, I before coming here, like I, I as an adult, I kind of come out of the, the mega church movement as it would be called and the mega church movement is centered around making sure everything is comfortable for you there's a free t-shirt it's only an hour it's quick it's about encouragement it's making sure there's parking if this is your first time right all those things all those things were this place of going I hope you're comfortable enough to come back maybe next week And I lived in that reality, that, that filter of, of okay, like, like how do you just make sure everyone's happy? How do you please everyone in the room? And the more you read scripture, you go, wait a minute. This actually isn't about anybody. This has kind of been about Jesus the whole time. And we get caught up in this self-centric world because social media makes it about us. Our jobs make it about us. Everything's about us. 
we have this identity of like, people need to know who I am. I'm going to show who I am by how I dress, by how I talk. You know, if I'm a hiker, I'm only going to wear Patagonia. And if I'm a pastor, I'm going to wear skinny jeans. And people are going to know who I am. Our personality shows in our clothes and who we are because what we're trying to constantly get across is who I am. And that's amazing. You have been designed specifically by the Lord. The thing is, though, when we gather, when we gather as a family, when we meet in this room, every moment from start to finish is not about you. It's about the Lord. Our worship is about the Lord. The message is about the Lord. The heart focus is the heart of the Lord. The centerpiece of our service is the Lord. My goal when I leave this room is never how well did I preach. My goal when I leave this room is how many people were here. How well did service go? How good was the flow? How many people enjoyed this? How well are people excited about kids' church now? How many people are excited about this? I oftentimes will leave this room, and when I get home, my question to the Lord is, was that pleasing to your heart? And if not, what do we need to do different? We ask those questions. We, we sat down as a staff. Is, is this the model the Lord has for us? Should we start with preaching and then move into worship? Should we have no preaching for six months and then only preaching for six months? Lord, like, how do you want this to go? I'm not, I'm not sold or stuck to a model. And I don't care what river I'm in. And just because my apostle whatever does something one way doesn't mean Yahweh's calling me to do that here. So what model do you have for us? What things do you want us to do? Because that's what I'm going to do. And if it's me and Braden and Braden's family, which is 20% of the church anyway, we'll have revival. But I'm going to be completely sold out on what Yahweh wants to do. And I'm not also living in the ignorance that I'm the only one that knows what that is. That's why we have a staff. That's why we have elders. That's why I have a spiritual father. It's so that I have a sounding board to say, this is what I feel Yahweh telling us to do. What are your thoughts? I'm not living in ignorance up here that I just, this is what the Lord said, so this is what we're gonna do. And you wouldn't think it, but Brian is very opinionated. So if I suggest something he doesn't like, he will tell me. His greatest gift is having his own opinions, trust me. I deal with it all the time. It's difficult. It's difficult changing. It's difficult doing things that are, are different. It's not easy. When you, when you come into this room, if you came into this room in 2020, when we launched, there was about 250 more people than we have now. And the difficult thing is not going, well, it's not working because people aren't coming. The difficult thing is going, well, this is what the Lord told us to do and this is what we're gonna do. Hate it for you, there's the door. And it's, it's, that's a scary place to be you have a staff and you, you pay people and you have a building that you help pay for and you have things you hope to accomplish and you have things you want to do and, and you genuinely, I genuinely love 
everyone in our family. Our church is small enough that I predominantly have a personal relationship with almost everyone in this room. I know you, I know your kids, I know your grandkids, I know your, some of your parents. I, I know all of you predominantly. You've all predominantly, have, or at least 60% of you have known me my whole life. Which don't fault me for that. Every, every pastor's kid needs a testimony. Um, but the hard thing is, is when you love someone and you have to go, I'm sorry, but we're just going to do what the Lord tells us to do. I'm so sorry. And I wish that I had a service that was dedicated to what the Lord didn't want to do so you could still come, but that's just not what we're going to do. Methodist churches have them now. It's called a traditional service and a contemporary service. That's what they have. It's whatever, whatever, whatever thing you're into, we got it. Just come. Just make sure you're here in time. And the hard thing is to stand in place and say, I'm only going to do what the Lord wants me to do. It's difficult. It's a hard way to go about things sometimes. It's a, it's a challenge. I watched my parents who have only known what feels like ministerial success for 30 years do what the Lord tells him, tell them to do, what the Lord told them to do. And people go, well, that's not what I want to do. So they just give up years of relational equity, years of life together. And it's hard over and over and over again sometimes to hear, well, I don't really want that. When the whole time they've been in your life, all they've ever said is, I just want what the Lord wants. I just want what the Lord wants. It's a difficult, it's a difficult road and it's a different path. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to close your eyes. Here's what I'm going to do. If, if you're staff, would you just come up to the altar? If you're on staff, Crystal, you come up to. <clears throat> and here's what I want to invite you into tonight. If you got to go, go. I've gone over. Here's what I want to invite you tonight into. I want to invite you into the invitation to be rebaptized into why you're doing what you're doing here, to why you're doing faith in the first place. So they're going to play. Brian, you can go ahead and start to come in. Band, you can go ahead and start to come in a bit. And they're just going to play. And Braden's here and he's going to sing. And I just invite you to just come up and get prayed for and be re-baptized into the intimacy that maybe you had when you first got into this. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you first got saved and you would have gone to South Africa by yourself for six months on a hunger strike for the Holy Spirit? Remember? Remember when you first gave your heart to the Lord and you read your Bible every day? You spent hours alone with Him? 
When I was a kid, we would travel hours just to go sit in the six-hour revival service. That predominantly you'd go to hear someone speak and then the worship would break out and it'd be so good that no one ever ended up speaking. But you were hungry, so you didn't care. When I was a kid, I grew up in, in the middle of a revival in Calhoun, Georgia. And we had services Monday through Friday and two services on Sunday. So Monday through Friday night and two services on Sunday. And somehow no one got tired because they were hungry. And they were hungry for what the Lord wanted them to do. And so here's my invitation to you tonight is come up tonight, get prayed over, get hands laid on you. Find again the intimacy that maybe you had when you started this whole thing. Maybe look back to Jesus. Maybe remember that this didn't start with your preferences. This actually started in your brokenness. So I'm just going to pray. Then I just invite you to come up. We've got people here. Abby, why don't you, oh, you're there. Mom, why don't you come up here, over here, so we have someone, some more people over here. If you just want to close your eyes, Father, tonight, I just, with the grace I have as a leader, I just ask that you just begin to just baptize our people once again in intimacy. Intimacy into the priestly vocation that you have called them to. Past their preferences, past their concerns, past their fears that you just begin to baptize them again in the why of why they're doing what they're doing. Let them become awakened to their priestly role, which is to minister to your heart, to leave their preferences aside and to move into what you've designed for them. In Jesus' name, you guys are free to come up.